Um, good to see you. Uh, do keep Mark chapter 15 open. That would be a great help for me. Um, at my school, the boys um, are encouraged to develop what we call enterprise skills. If you don't know what an enterprise skill is, that's fine. Uh, before I... Before I began working there, I had no idea what they were either. Um, But it's things like questioning and thinking um, and teamwork and also problem solving. Problem solving is one of our enterprise skills. It's a useful skill to have, isn't it, to to, to solve problems in your your adult's life. Um, What problem is humanity facing? Not just when those boys grow up, but as a whole, what is humanity facing? Uh, Let me give you some uh, few stories from this week's news. See what you think about these. UK facing worst terror threat in 34 years, warns MI5 chief. That was on Wednesday. Sounds like a problem, doesn't it? Uh, Reversing Brexit would boost economy, says the OECD. Universal credit isn't a fair system and should be scrapped. Uh, The Los Angeles Police Department opened another uh, Weinstein investigation and many more allegations made against senior figures in the entertainment industry. That seems like a problem. Uh, Independence crisis in... Uh, independence crisis intensifies as Spain prepares to strip Catalonia of local powers. That was on Friday morning. That seems like a problem. A lot of serious problems and issues that humanity is facing. Uh, Here's one more. Exhausted Chelsea stars are unhappy with their training loads. That's not an issue. issue. I I struggle to find sympathy for anyone complaining when they get paid a million pounds a week. But there are lots of problems facing humanity, aren't there? But the Bible says that the biggest problem facing humanity is its sin and the consequences that are due for its sin. In fact, that's not a great way of wording it, is it? Because, because it, problem sounds like something that we could get together and have a chat about and work out a plan and we could solve it. So our fridge broke down this week, um, which was deeply upsetting given the, um, the chicken tikka I had in there. Um, but it broke down, but we're going to fix it. It's fine. It's going to be sorted. We'll, we'll, we'll find a way around that. The Bible says humanity's sin is the horrifying reality that it is in And it means it is on the path to catastrophic destruction. The newspapers, did you notice, didn't mention any of that. They didn't really talk about sin. Um, But that is the truth. That is the reality. And actually, sin is the hidden root and the shadow lying silent but active behind a lot of those stories. Uh, And don't we know people who are like that, who who, um, know sin, they experience sin, they do sin, but they don't talk about it, they don't accept it. Um, We all know people who think they're basically good and that God doesn't really mind what they're doing. So I was telling my hub group earlier this week about a friend I have um, who seemed really interested in Jesus. Um, I think he came to believe that Jesus is real, that Jesus is probably God. But when we started talking about Jesus being king and, and if he became a Christian, the changes that would need to happen in his life, he started to back away. And he said this, he said, I don't need to commit to anything. I think God's fine with me as I am. He's happy with the way I live and the way I treat him. And there was no understanding there of the gravity of sin or the consequences that were coming for sin. I think often as Christians we can be the same, can't we? Uh, This is me, certainly me, that I can think God won't mind if I commit that sin again. Because I'm a Christian and I I, I know it's wrong, but but God won't mind. Uh, And I'll still be going to church on Sunday and I'll still be praying. And so a little bit of sin every now and again is, is okay. There might even be people here tonight who are hiding a really significant ongoing sin um, where they've actively chosen to disobey God. 
And they persuaded themselves that God's fine with that. How many scandals have rocked the church? Sex scandals, power scandals, money scandals, where people have persuaded themselves God's fine with this. We forget the gravity and the consequences of sin, its seriousness and the coming punishment for it. We forget what a problem sin is. So what can we do? Well, this passage tonight reminds us of the gravity of sin. How does it do that? It describes the moment Jesus Christ took our sins on himself and then everything he went through as a consequence of that. And if we're a Christian, that should shake us into thinking, Jesus did that to take the consequence for my sin. How can I now decide that sinning is just fine? And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, then this passage speaks very, very clearly to you. Because it points you to the punishment that will come on you for your sin if you don't turn to Jesus. Because the Bible is very, very clear. It says, Jesus takes it, or you take it. So let's look at the passage and look at everything Jesus went through when he took our sin. Um, Notice as we go through the passage, the physical suffering he goes through, and also the relational suffering he goes through. That's quite a clumsy phrase. By that, I'm trying to say the, the, the way that he is treated by other people around him. Um, it'll, it'll make sense as we go through. Um, let's just jump back to verse 15. 15, just outside of our reading tonight, but we'll go back to it. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The praetorium was um, possibly Herod's palace on the west side of Jerusalem. Pilate would have been based there with a, a big detachment of soldiers because he was worried about unrest at the Passover festival. And that is where he deals with Jesus. And first, Jesus is flogged. This was done with a whip. He would have had several strands coming out the end of it, um, some of them almost three feet long. Um, and on the end of each of those strands, there would have been a piece of metal um, or, or lead balls or, or a piece of bone. And this was standard practice under Roman law, that if someone was going to be executed, if they were going to be crucified, then they would be flogged before. But sometimes the people who were being flogged never made it to crucifixion because the flogging or the flagellation was so brutal. It was viewed as something in Roman society that you wouldn't even do to a stupid animal. Roman citizens were exempt from being flogged because it was seen as so degrading as well as so painful. It was known as the halfway death. The church historian Eusebius of Caesarea um, recounts with vivid, horrible detail a a scene of of, of scourging, of, um, of flogging. He says this, For they saw that the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members, were exposed to view. It doesn't stop there. Verse 18, Jesus is then hit on the head with a staff. And this is a big, big wooden stick swung by a tough Roman soldier who knew what he was doing. 
And then verse 17, he has a crown of thorns put on his head, which I'd I'd imagine would have been um, quite painful. Those two extra punishments weren't under Roman law. These are just for Jesus. But of course, the crown of thorns um, was designed to mock Jesus far more than it was to cause him pain. Notice all the ways he is mocked in this passage by other people, uh, what I'm calling relational suffering. People, people mock him. The, the soldiers gather around him. They put a purple robe on him because kings wore purple. Purple was royalty. And so they are mockingly recalling him king. Verse 19, they fall on their knees and they pay him homage. And you can imagine some of them maybe doing it and then others stood around the edges just laughing and jeering. You can imagine if it was 2017, some of them getting their phones out and taking a video, sending it around the, the garrison WhatsApp group. Have you seen this? It's hilarious. So funny. And then this parallel suffering, this physical suffering, you know, Jesus' body suffering, and then relational where people are mocking him and insulting him. It carries on into the next passage. Um, verse 21, he's so exhausted by this point, someone else has to carry the crossbeam for him. And then verse 24, he is crucified. We get our words excruciating from the same root as crucifixion. I watched a documentary with Michael Portillo uh, a few years ago, and Michael Portillo was going around America discussing the, capital, uh, the, the death penalty, capital punishment, with people, but he was trying to find out what was the most humane way of ending a criminal's life. And what you saw was that in every state, the authorities were trying to come up with the most humane way to do it. Some people thought it might be the electric chair. A lot of people thought it might be a lethal injection. Some people thought maybe going back to some form of gas chamber. They were trying to, to end the criminal's life as quickly as possible, as painlessly as possible, with the least humiliation. Let's be absolutely clear. The Roman execution squad in this passage had absolutely no interest in being humane or ending Jesus' life quickly and with little pain. They could have done that. They need dozens of ways to kill people in seconds. Crucifixion was designed to be excruciating and drawn out as the dying person's lungs shook, as they gasped in pain for air, as their lungs were crushed, as their body ached with the pain, as their, their weight pulled down, their, their limbs were pulled away from the nails that had been driven into their wrists and their ankles. I happened to be reading last week, um, in preparation for a lesson I was doing, um, about the film The Passion of the Christ. Uh, that is uh, Mel Gibson's 2004 film. It's about the final 12 hours of Jesus' life, and one of the releases in the UK was rated 18 in this country. It was rated 18 for extended scenes of strong violence. The actor who played Jesus, uh, Jen Caviezel, was obviously so uh, was obviously pretending to be crucified. He was acting. He's an actor, but famously, he still suffered a number of injuries during filming. So he was accidentally whipped twice, and he's been left with a 14-inch scar on his back. He experienced hypothermia and asphyxiation while filming a scene on a cross. He suffered a shoulder separation, and he even required heart surgery after filming was completing due to the extreme stress of filming those scenes. That is an actor filming a made-up version of a crucifixion scene. It gives us some idea, doesn't it, of what Jesus went through. And we sanitize the cross, don't we? We sanitize the cross because we see the symbol of the cross everywhere. 
You see it in, on church buildings. You see it on church notice sheets. You see it on the, the background sometimes, the song lyrics. Um, you even see it on jewelry worn by Christians, sometimes even worn by non-Christians. And we're so used to it, we forget its utter brutality. It's no wonder that Cicero, the Roman philosopher, um, once said that the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. He says, don't even mention the word. It's, it's so appalling. If he walked into a church in 2017, the number of times the word cross is mentioned, he would be shocked because it's so brutal. And alongside the physical suffering, the relational suffering. When Jesus is carrying his cross to Golgotha, um, they would have taken a deliberately long and windy route so that everyone could have seen him. Golgotha was on a hill just outside Jerusalem. There was a, there was a road running past it. Um, in America, going back to their executions, they do it in private. Um, there's a few people who are allowed there, but when the thing actually happens, I think they put curtains up. This is a public execution. It is entirely in public. There's the sign that hangs over Jesus' head, King of the Jews, again mocking him. The soldiers are gambling for his clothes. So there's a good chance that Jesus was naked, hanging on this cross. And then look at the groups that abuse him. The soldiers, of course. And then verse 29, those people who are just passing by mock him. Verse 27, there are two rebels crucified either side of him. And verse 32, we're told that at least one of them, at least, mocks Jesus, even as they are both dying. Verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. Just take a moment to let all of that sink in. The depth of the physical and relational suffering that the Lord Jesus goes through. When you put it all together, it is hard to imagine any other situation in history where someone has suffered so much. And look at verse 23. He refuses myrrh. Myrrh would have been a a painkiller. And he refuses it. He doesn't duck the suffering. And why does he do it? He does it for us. He does it to take that punishment for our, for our sin. We'll come back to that in a moment. He suffers horrendously physically. He suffers terribly relationally. The most significant suffering he um, experiences is spiritual. You see, few of the people who saw Jesus hanging on this cross um, understood what was going on. Perhaps no, perhaps no one really grasped it. But as Jesus suffered physically and relationally, he was also suffering spiritually. He was suffering the ultimate punishment of of, of God's judgment and separation from his father. And the peak of this seems to come in verse 34. Uh, Verse 33 says, At noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. 34, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness in the Bible represents God's judgment. So think back to the book of Exodus. The penultimate plague is darkness across the land of Egypt. In Amos chapter 8, God is speaking about his coming judgment. And he says this. He says, in that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And so that the three hours of darkness uh, as Jesus suffers and dies is a supernatural sign. 
I think I'm right in saying that the longest eclipse ever recorded um, was six minutes long. This is three hours. And it is God the Father saying really clearly, my judgment is on my son. It got me thinking, think back to the baptism scene where, where the Lord Jesus is being baptized and a voice comes from heaven and the Father says, this is my beloved son. And verse 34 is the exact opposite of that. And that's why Jesus cries out in verse 34. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a quote from Psalm 22. Jesus is using God's word in the Old Testament to cry out what he is experiencing. In fact, if you look at the original Greek, it's not that he cries out, it is that he screams out. I think this is probably the peak of his suffering. What is going on? Well, chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 gives us that answer. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul writes, God made him, as Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has taken on himself our sin, and he has taken the judgment and punishment for our sin. And at the heart of that punishment is separation from God. Here's how um, the great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, described it. He said, he, Jesus, at this moment, was without God. It was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was taken from him. He had the feeling of the condemned. He heard as when the judge says, depart from me, you cursed. You shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He felt that God had said the same to him. This is the hell in which Christ suffered at that moment on the cross. I think it's interesting that Jesus still cries out, my God, my God. Uh, I think he still has confidence that God the Father is his Father, but he is experiencing all the spiritual punishment that comes as a result of sin. The poet um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning put it this way. She said, Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe has shaken. Emmanuel's orphan cry, God with us, orphaned, crying out, and it shakes the universe. And what does all of this show us? It shows us the punishment for sin. You see, Jesus is being punished for the sin that he takes on himself for his people. Um, There are loads of famous people who die early, who die tragic deaths, but Jesus is not just dying. This is an execution scene. People are executed as a punishment. And Jesus is being punished for the sins he has taken on himself for his people. And that means the things that he experiences in this chapter are appointed to the judgment and punishment facing anyone that doesn't turn to him and trust in his sacrifice. The Bible talks very clearly. In fact, Jesus talks very clearly about God's coming judgments. It is what the Bible calls hell, and it is terrible. It will involve physical punishment. So, so Jesus talks on a number of occasions about eternal physical torment. And I think some of, those, um, so some of that language is picture language. The Bible doesn't go into loads of detail. But I think Jesus' agony at the cross is a pointer to the physical suffering to come. And it will involve spiritual and relational punishment. God is a triune God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect, loving relationship. He made us to be in perfect, loving relationship with him and with everyone else. 
Sin is a rejection of relationship with God. And part of God's, God's judgment, God's punishment on sinners is, is that hell is the final cementing of the breaking of that relationship. And not only that, but hell is, is a place where there are no positive relationships. The events of the cross, I think, where Jesus is, experiences all this relational suffering, where he experiences mocking and abuse and scorn, and there's a total and utter breakdown in relationship between him and others, points forward to hell, where there will be a complete and utter breakdown of all relationships. And don't we see now that when sin gets involved in relationships, like in marriages and, and business relationships, it, it destroys, doesn't it? It doesn't build up. It points forward to the devastating catastrophe of, catastrophe of hell, where, where all relationship will be gone. And so I've had a, a colleague say to me um, that she thinks that, um, that the, the things that she's learned about Jesus and about the gospel are probably true, but she doesn't want to become a Christian um, because she knows that her friends and her family are not Christians, and she doesn't want to be separated from them because she, she loves them so much. She would rather go to hell with them. And do you know what? I can, I can feel that. I can feel the force of that argument. But one of the things they need to understand is that hell is not a place of relationship. Hell is not a place of relationship. You might have heard people joke that hell is where the party's going to be. And that's utter rubbish. Hell is not a place of relationship. And on a spiritual level, the passage shows us that hell will ultimately involve separation from God. The God who is the creator, the God of life, the God of love, uh, the God of goodness. And rather than enjoying who he is for eternity, those in hell will be subject to his anger, just as the Lord Jesus was. And, and so this, this passage shows us that the consequences of sin, the punishment for sin. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, thanks for coming. It's brilliant to see you. We love having you here. But you need to listen very, very carefully to what this passage is saying. Because this is where you are heading. Um, I was driving in uh, Rains Park um, a couple of days ago. You might know that there's, there's the part in Rains Park where you're crossing over from the A3 over to the Grand Drive area and there's a level crossing. And as I was driving towards it, um, the lights started flashing and the, the barrier started coming down. Now I could have kept going, could have kept going. It was a warning, but I could have kept going. Three or four seconds later, um, hundreds of tons of southwestern railway train comes charging through that crossing. You've got to listen to the warning. <laughs> The cross is a warning. The cross is a warning saying, this is the punishment that is coming in the future. You have to heed that warning. We live in a world that wants to avoid the warning of what God's judgment on sin will really be. Uh, I read a newspaper column a couple of weeks ago um, by Judge Rob Rinder. Um, he, I don't know if you know who he is. Um, I think he's a, a judge um, or a lawyer who's pretending to be a judge, or he, he does daytime TV shows that I've never watched, um, and he was on Strictly Come Dancing. Um, I, I think he's also from a Jewish background. He's from a Jewish background. Um, and to be honest, he's not on my radar, but the heading of his column in the Evening Standard caught my eye. He said, Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, fell this week. I'm not especially religious. The Lord I pray to has Joanna Lumley's face and pronounces judgment in Kirsty Young's soothing tones. Nonetheless, a 25-hour fast was just the kickstart I needed to begin my autumn diet. And I used the opportunity to contemplate my sins. 
I dread my trial at the pearly gates, knowing my luck, I'll be hot on the heels of a blameless nun who will be ushered straight to a cloud with prime sea views. He goes on to say that, though, that he is confident that God will let him into heaven um, because he has managed to arrange um, for some of his friends to get together on dates, and now some of them are married. And so that's why he will get in. And there's a really flippant attitude there, isn't there, towards a number of things. There's, there's the attitude towards sin, that he doesn't think sin is a particularly big issue. Sin is just this kind of, oh, he's not as good as a nun, but he's done some good things, it'll be fine. There's a, a really flippant attitude towards God. Who is God? For him, God is whoever he wants God to be. He doesn't care about who God actually is and how God has revealed himself. And there is no grasp of how serious God's judgment on sin and sinners will be. It's really sad, isn't it? It reflects much of the thinking of the world. And this passage cries out at us. It says, no, God's judgment is coming. Look at what it will be like. And so it leads us, as Daph was saying this morning, when we think about God's judgment, it should lead us to plead with God for our, for our friends, for our neighbours, for our children, that they would know the Lord Jesus. This passage also shows us the seriousness of sin. How serious is our sin? Look at what Jesus went through to deal with it. If it wasn't very serious, why would Jesus be doing this? Look at the physical pain he went through, the mocking and the abuse, the spiritual punishment. It shows us the seriousness of our sin. And yet I don't take it that seriously. So forget Judge Rinder. Why is it that I slip so easily into those bad habits? I call them bad habits. They're not bad habits at all. They're repeated patterns of sinning. But it's easier if I call them bad habits. I know that they are wrong, but I just think God won't mind. Why is it that when I treated my wife badly earlier this week, that I didn't feel that bad? And when I did feel bad, I felt bad because I was being told off <laughs> for being horrible to her. And I felt, I felt bad for what I'd done. But I didn't really feel bad about the way I treated God in that whole moment. I downloaded a, a podcast a few days ago. I was going on a, on a cycle ride. And I thought, oh, this is going to be quite a long cycle ride. Um, I want something to listen to. And I, um, I quite like comedy things. And so I downloaded a new comedy podcast I'd never listened to before. And within five minutes of this ride, I pulled over at the, at the side of the road. Um, and I turned it off. Because it was filled with such filth. Um, such uh, you know, innuendo. Lots of things like that. Well, not even innuendo. Just... Just really explicit content. And I thought, this is disgusting. And look at what Jesus did for me. And it's because I had this passage in my head in the morning. And I was thinking, Jesus died for my sin. That's how serious sin is. But here I am listening to this rubbish. Now, that's me on a good day. On a bad day, I would have spent an hour listening to that podcast and quite enjoying it. We often don't take our sin as seriously as we should. But look at the cross. Look at how Jesus suffered to take the penalty for it. And the next time you're tempted to sin, just think of his sacrifice. The cross shows us the punishment for sin. It shows us the seriousness of sin. And here's the final point I want us to look at briefly. It shows us the king who deals with sin. Did you notice the theme of Jesus' royalty running through this passage? It runs through it in a strange way because it's often through the mocking of people. It's often ironic. It's also people proclaiming him as king, but not realizing that they are actually proclaiming the truth. 
And so the soldiers put a royal robe on Jesus and they bow before him in homage. And I wonder when that passage was read, if your mind jumped to a passage like Philippians 2, where Paul says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every single one of those Roman soldiers will be there on that final day with bended knees. They will bow before the king of kings. The sign above Jesus' head read, King of the Jews. There was a crown of thorns placed upon his head and he looked so weak, so weak, because he'd given himself up as a servant king in suffering. But he won't always be like that. Revelation 19 says, Jesus' return will be like this. It says, from his mouth proceeds a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the King. And he's dying to deal with our sin so that we can be his people and he can be our King. That's the great theme song of the Bible, isn't it? God keeps on saying, they will be my people. I will be their God. I will be their king. But the consequences of sin were that that from the moment Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, that separation, the curse of separation, hung over humanity. But look at verse 38, where it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The inner part of the temple um, represented God's presence on earth. God's presence on earth. Almost no one could go there. The high priest could go there. And he could go in once a year. Um, And I I think at some points they they didn't know what to do if the high priest had a heart attack when he was in there. So they used to tie rope around his ankles. They could pull him out. Because no one else could go in there. No one else could go in. And only he could go in once a year. Because no one else could go into God's presence. There was a separation. But now, this 60 foot high curtain is torn in two. And so the massive no entry sign is gone. Jesus has experienced physical, spiritual, and relational suffering so that we could be in relationship with God again. That is our King at work. And as well as considering the seriousness of sin, the consequences of sin, The final thing I want us to do do tonight is simply just bow in worship to the King of Kings. In this passage, we see the King facing the most brutal suffering conceivable so that you could know him and I could know him for eternity. And so we should reflect the awestruck words of the centurion who has been there probably for this whole thing, maybe during all the way back to the flogging scene as Jesus has carried the cross up to Golgotha and then up there, the centurion who possibly has been in charge of the execution squad he sees all of it he looks at the face of jesus verse 39 he says surely this man was the son of god perhaps you're someone here tonight who who has been like one of the soldiers earlier in the passage just mocking jesus ignoring jesus saying do you know what jesus you're not king Maybe you've even come along to church and you've said, Jesus, you are king, but you haven't lived like that at all. That's never actually been the way of your life. You've never actually turned to Jesus. You've just sung the words and said, Jesus, you are king. You've just mocked him in that way. But now, like the centurion, you want to go, yes, yes, I see it. I believe. I want to turn to you. 
I was going to um, end with, with what I thought was quite a, an interesting, striking illustration, but I'm not going to. Because I don't want us to, to, to get distracted at all from just gazing at the wonder of the cross. This moment 2,000 years outside Jerusalem where God's perfect character is revealed. Where the, reality, the horrifying reality of our sin and judgment is revealed. And where we see Jesus. So let me just finish by reading again the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just a few words. But so much in there. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.